70 record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. As the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? We also seek to find out. Good evening, 98.4 Capital FM. Welcome to the Financial Forecast where you can access accurate and timely global market outlook on demand alongside Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist at Mentor Economics, and myself, Danny Muni, to listen to us online, www.capitalfm.co.ke forward slash listen live or download the iCapitalFM radio app. Be the first to know what's happening around the world in the global markets every Monday morning bright and early by visiting www.mentoria.co.ke to subscribe. Good evening, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> you say it very well. <laughs> oh, Ken, how are you? I'm very, very well. And uh, yeah, it's great to be here, Danny. How was your weekend? Our uh, weekend was very relaxed. Obviously, those debates from the finance bill last week have spilled over. As we speak right now, the debate is still continuing and everybody's asking, what does this really mean for us at a micro level? And that's what we'll find out today. If we have a budget that is supposed to make our lives better or improve them in any shape or form in terms of how we live or maybe to make things difficult, for lack of a better word, right? And so to reach us for any comments, inquiries or uh, contributions, you can reach us on WhatsApp 0701984984 or you can tweet us on at Capital FM Kenya hashtag financial forecast now let's very quickly jump in as is customary with this show into the equities market and see how they are performing it's been a week since we were here on the last episode the first episode of the season two of the financial forecast all indicators were happy champagne was being popped all around today it's a different story altogether because everything seems to be with within the range of glaring red from the s p 500 I saw a slight improvement to the Nasdaq, but the but the, the the red was quite bright to the Dow Jones. Maybe apart from the FTSE 100 and the Nikkei, which have gained, and the Bitcoin as well. Everything else looks scary. Ken? Yes, the champagne that you talk about ended and the party, everybody went home. And this has been quite a gloomy week. Uh, most indicators in the red. And I think the celebrations that were there uh, last week from... The Fed pausing on the interest rates. I think uh, people were expecting the U.S.-China deal. Um, some that uh, that meeting between Anthony Blinken and uh, President Xi Jinping to really bear some fruit in terms of the whole U.S.-China uh, relationship. But there was no movement in terms of any of those th- the big what we call the big themes. Um, that's Taiwan. Uh, that's human rights, technology. Those really no movement. So I think that left the markets a bit disappointed. And China itself has not been doing well. They are post-COVID recovery. We've already punched holes into that uh, theme. Uh, but even broadly, uh, in Europe, we are seeing interest rates going up. People are expecting the Bank of England to raise interest rates tomorrow, uh, and many other banks might follow. So it's, it's as you say, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a dampening uh, of investor sentiment this week. What was the expectation of Blinken's visits to China. Was it that they were going to convert China from 
pairing that closely with Russia and maybe or what exactly was the expectation to the extent that maybe we would have seen green indicators within the stock markets and equities? Uh, well, you know, the U.S. and China have the largest bilateral relationship in the world. In fact, one author called it the bilateral relationship of our lifetime. And the key three things that tend to underpin that have traditionally been issues around Taiwan, um, Taiwan's autonomy or lack of, um, I- issues around human rights and uh, technology. We've seen what happened with the Huawei's um, of this world and what that's done um, on the tech space. So that seems to be the three, stu- the three-legged stool upon which um, Sino-American relationships have uh, traditionally be- been anchored, and there not being any movement on, the, on those three made it almost like a technical appearance, a technical meeting. And I think global markets took that negatively because it means the trade between the two countries will not um, ease or will not improve. And um, I think that's the reason you're seeing uh, almost all the indicators, the Dow Jones, the Nasdaq, the S&P, are really disappointed and sort of all bearish right now. Let's look at the FTSE 100 and the Nikkei. Um, The governor in England is expected to hold rates tomorrow, right? Is that why then maybe the reception in this market is quite excited or... What would be what would be the the indicator that makes the FTSE 100 behave the way it, it it's it's behaving at the moment? Um, I think on the contrary, uh, and of course these things are built by consensus. But most economists believe uh, there will be a rate rise, um, the 13th rate rise, um, only because inflation still is a problem. It's still quite high. Um, the two-year bond has gone up. 5%. Uh, mortgage rates are very high. So there is a feeling that uh, the ECB will, I mean, sorry, the, the Bank of England will continue on that rate rise. And that's we find all outside the FTSE, most of uh, um, the other stocks have been negative. Now, there could be individual stocks that drive the FTSEs because, you know, it's just the 100 blue chips. Uh, but the, neg- the, the impact of an uh, interest rate rise definitely uh, will have a negative impact on the economy. Japan seems to have the plan, right? Yeah, I mean, Japan have um, adopted an ultra-loose monetary policy. So we are finding it in the three continents, uh, different outlooks on interest rates. The Fed are pausing, the Europeans are raising, and Japan is lowering. Lowering. Also China. China, almost every day they're cutting the the benchmark rate. So from a trader, people who actually trade these indices and stocks, I think it's a very exciting time because traders love when there's that type of volatility. And that's what really creates um, sort of trading positions. So traders out there, I'm sure they're having a field day. But uh, as an economist, obviously, it it, it can be concerning because you get mixed signals in terms of where exactly is the world going to right now. On the commodities range... Metals seem to register similar performance with the equities. Gold is down, silver is down, copper is up, steel is down, iron ore is up. But then you can see the the the, the pattern there with especially the big metals is that all of them are losing, whereas two three weeks ago they were really on a good rally. That tells you the outlook on demand is weak. 
uh, it tells you that the impact of the European tightening, the Bank of England tightening, is still very strong. And it tells you that uh, the outlook on growth um, is weak. And that's what's telling you outside individual stories of a few metals, the broad consensus is demand is um, soft, really. And so the demand is not due to liquidity, is it? Well, it is. Actually, it is. It, it means liquidity, li liquidity becomes very tight in the market when interest rates go up. Um, for example, in England alone, uh, the mortgage costs have gone up um, 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 almost a th factor of three times over the last couple of years. So what people can afford in terms of their day-to-day -day expenditure when your mortgage rate goes up becomes very limited. And that's the same thing for the U.S. So customer purchasing power becomes weaker. So even if these commodities were going into uh, vehicles and construction and um, musical equipment, it means, it, to tech, it means really um, those orders will be uh, much less Every now and then there is one story, one maybe, uh, maybe we can talk about nickel and what it does maybe for um, iPhones and mm. stuff. But those are very isolated stories. So as you've said, the broad narrative has been commodities um, are looking bearish right now. Agriculture, same scenario, wheat down, sugar down, canola down, coffee down. Actually, the only thing that went up is rice. Sorry, it's tea. Rice down, palm oil down seems there is distortion everywhere from the metals commodities to the agricultural ones the equities everything seems to be a bit shaky it does and i think even the tea story is not even a demand story it's a supply story many of the demand pockets uh, are, are, are many of the supply side areas that a lot of quite a number of issues happening in those sides so i'd expect to see the story around wheat because wheat is such a powerful indicator of and con of global demand we've talked about the climatic um, themes happening i mean the u.s it's summertime uh, where these uh, demand and supply constraints i think those themes will continue to play uh, particularly in for corn and for wheat there's a lot of positive news coming out of the airline industry uh last week i think on thursday or friday capital news betrayed a story from boeing that they expect the number of planes in the air to double by 2042. To which I responded jokingly to the tweet and, and I said, yeah, in Airbus's favor. <laughs> now, the, the big and funny story here is that yesterday, Airbus announced the biggest aircraft order in the history of aviation to sell 500 jets to Indigo. Now, when you look at what's happening around the country, for instance, Kenya Airways has been performing quite well. They've now just announced daily flights to New York. And just as um, evidence of how well they're doing, for instance, within the ESC on KQ, if you want to get a seat, it's very difficult. They're actually asking you to book with other airlines because you're booked all the way till September. Emirates and Qatar have refined luxury in showers, in-flight butlers, the glitzy destination airport hubs they frequent and they reap very huge profits from this you know from from, from these routes now after 78 years saudi arabia's national carrier which is kind of like a shuttle bus that just ferries the faithful to mecca 
with a very strict protocol on you know alcohol consumption women must be fully covered and they even separate couples that frequent the airline but are not married are, are now looking to take the fight to the doorstep of Emirates and Qatar with a new airline Riyadh Air will they succeed is there going to be any success in terms of challenging the dominance of Emirates and Qatar in that airspace where they all seem to be to be together that's a very interesting area and let me start with the second part before i go to the, the first part of your question I mean, it's true Saudi Arabia generally from a geopolitical perspective uh, believes it needs to um, grow in stature in the Middle East. Uh, and with Qatar really coming up, it's a small country but punches way above. And you even remember um, the, the issues uh, that were there a few years ago. So there is a big geopolitically, a, a big competition between these two countries that's driving up, whether it's in football, we saw Qatar having the World Cup, yes. and now Saudi Arabia is hiring all the big stars, uh, whether it's in, in tech, whether it's in investments, and these are countries that rely heavily on natural resources. So that has been there. In fact, I remember meeting somebody from Qatar a few weeks ago, and he was telling me the shift in terms of people consider Kuwait the past, uh, Dubai the present, and Qatar the, the future. future. <laughs> That's true. Very, very interesting take. But the Saudis... You know, they do have significant wealth. A know, lot si- of, and yes. they can't be able to match. So I think this is uh, the prince, the crown prince, really uh, playing his cards at the global stage and saying Saudi Arabia is no pushover. We really are the uh, 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 opportunity. And I think they're seeing the aviation industry as a way of projecting that uh, global brand. Now, to your broader question around the future of the airline industry, it's true there's so much happening. But I think there are two... Um, fighting themes that are playing out in the aviation sector. Number one, you have a post-COVID recovery where there was what you call a pent-up demand. Those three years, people were locked up in their houses and now people want to go on vacations. They want to go abroad. They want to go for graduations and uh, they want to go for their friends' parties abroad and travel and business. So that pent-up demand that is starting to boost um, this. And if you look at ticket prices, they've really skyrocketed. In fact, I was saying in America, people are now doing road trips instead of very uh, expensive because of airline trips. So there's that one theme, but not there's a conflicting theme on climate and sustainability, because that whole climate faction has been saying, you know, we need to make sure globalization is good, but the the nature of especially when you can do a Skype meeting, when you can do a meeting over WhatsApp and you have to take a flight, you know, your carbon footprint is very extensive and delegations go for big meetings when they can have, you know, during COVID people are doing meetings on Teams and on Zoom. So there's that conflicting theme and I think those will be the two forces that will uh, drive. But I think right now the pent-up demand is a winning um, argument right now. Uh, But towards 2030, 2040, when you talk about climate, I don't know if it will continue being, particularly when people are becoming more and more sensitive to climate change. S- Singapore Air has trounced Hong Kong's Cathay Pacific in fortunes with startling revealing valuations. At the moment right now, Singapore's Air, S- Singapore, Singapore Air's market value is $17 billion, which is almost three times that of Cathay Pacific. Four years ago, the difference was only $2 billion. 
that's that's a big difference now even amid increased inflation does the aviation industry and you kind of just answered likely to continue holding onto that very newfound fortune they've walked into well now you have to talk about corporate strategy because you have an aviation industry where there are many players but you find each company has its own strategy whether it's KQ here or Cathay Pacific or Singapore I think Cathay Pacific used to be a really big airline you know when you were growing up they used to come to Kenya if you remember yes. uh, back in the day but if you find their strategy has been very dependent on China the same China that has been locked in covid for the last 3 years so it tells you a key part of strategy is diversification you can't have all your eggs in one basket so they're really uh, focused on the chinese market and number 2 you know they're really having um, issues around I, I i don't know if you saw the, the recent story about the cabin crew uh being caught um exploiting non-english speakers it was a big scandal and they've lost a lot of big brands yes. pumas and then stuff so it tells you their decline in stature is really nothing about the aviation industry but how they've managed their strategy but if you talk about singapore airlines they have been so consistent constantly winning awards almost 10 years in a row have an equally impressive airport that complements the airline um longest flight in the world i think um the singapore to new york so i think they've been very consistent from a strategy pass you know you can be in an industry where the dynamics are either for you or against you but your individual company strategy can differentiate you and i think singapore airlines and qatar i think for me really stand as the future of where airline industry is going amazing we'll take a quick break and when we come back we'll have the chance to now in a very deep sense look at the microeconomic tax budget that was read on the june of 15 on 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 june the 15th If parliament does not change the ceiling then we have to operate with 587 billion meaning that budget has to be cut by 133 billion to fit within the law that's how it is so it is this committee that has to now make its recommendation uh, to the next uh, level that considers the bps june 15th was the day March, uh, thursday treasury presented what i'd like to call the tax budget 2023-2024 it has a more fancy name on official documents but it is what it is we are going to be paying a lot of tax and it had a lot of mixed reaction and 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 maybe just before we begin this budget analysis we want to give a very strong disclaimer and let those who have ears hear the proposal to change the debt ceiling from a numerical limit to a percentage of the gdp will be the most colossal gaffe in the short 60 years history of this republic's existence that is straight from this week's mentoria economics global market report of course backed up by the very honorable honorable true to the sense professor terry ryan can what's the likely consequence of changing this numerical debt ceiling to the percentage of gdp 
Well, it has a lot of implications. Uh, number one, it assumes that as a country's GDP grows, it necessarily should be able to carry more debt. And that's not always true. Sometimes you can have a country's GDP is going up, but also its obligations are going up. Indeed, a few years ago, before Kenya did the euro bond, uh, its GDP was growing, and it left that category called the least developed countries and went to a new category called uh, middle-income countries. But with that upgrading, it means a lot of the development assistance that were coming from foreign developers ceased to come. It means now you have to carry your own weight. weight. So yes, you are growing as a GDP, but yes. So it means net of, yes, you have a higher GDP, but you have more obligations. So there is a reason that most countries, including the United States, they have a numerical limit, the $31 trillion dollars. Number one, it's very easy even for the parliamentarian to be able to keep track of. Number two, GDP is can constantly move. Every now and then we conduct event, uh, activities called the rebasement of the economy. So if the economy is rebased, you find the numbers go up, which means you can borrow more. So it can lead the country into a debt trap. And even at the individual level, now that today we are talking micro, when you go to the bank, they'll tell you your credit card limit, Danny, is X, let's say 100,000 shillings. They will not say it's 55% of your salary. In fact, you'll have a bank having two people having the same income, but their credit card limits are very different. Are very different. Yeah, because maybe one has a family set up, supporting more people, and person B lives alone. So what that income means does not mean that they have the same risk level. And that's why countries prefer to have, even banks will tell you, we are, we, are not, we are not giving you a percentage of your income. We are giving you a numerical limit. The United States uses the numerical limit. So I have no understanding why they would want to take us into a path where your debt now starts becoming, it's almost like a moving target. Because they say, oh, we are using the rebased numbers of GDP, not the current GDP. So those are the things that I think, in fact, from an oversight perspective, Parliament should say, no, we shall increase it from maybe from 10 to 13. Because if you don't do that, it becomes a moving target and becomes very difficult. Parliament itself seems to be under a chokehold where even the democracies, uh, the, the democratic rights to have... Uh, uh, secret ballot on things like the finance bill don't seem to be availed to them. They, 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 the parliament seems to be policed. So if that's what's happening right now, how is it possible for them to come, have a sit down and argue and say, we need a debt ceiling based on numerical figures as opposed to the GDP? Well, that's a political um, question, Danny, and that's for your political issue on Monday. To, the, to what extent... Do parliamentarians um, represent the interests of the people? Because I think there was a survey that came out last week which you can dispute that says a significant portion of Kenyans are against this particular bill. But as you said, the whipping process of political parties. Um, and you had one MP saying, you know, everybody must vote with the party position. So the question is, 
at what point does the politics advance the interests of of the ordinary Kenyan versus uh, the political class? I think you know I'm not trained in that different field. I'm an economist altogether. <laughs> yeah. Now looking at the budget, and you know, let's be very childish, rudimentary, or elementary, if you like, because that's the only way we can get a full grasp of how this budget will at- will affect us at the very micro level. What's the purpose of making a budget? Well, well, a budget is a spending plan. And the purpose can change from time to time depending on the situation of the country. Sometimes when times are good, you want to have an expansive budget. You want to do, raise more revenue and build more schools and build more hospitals. And that's called an expansionary um budget. Sometimes when things are not going very well, you want to consolidate. You want to say our debt levels are too high, we need to consolidate. This particular budget tries to do both. On the one hand, the expenditure has gone up by about, I think, 8% from last year's spending. But at the same time, you're also trying to consolidate on the debt. So you're trying to push in different Directions. directions and i think there was a nobel prize i don't know, one of the first earliest nobel prizes that says you know you need to have one objective at one time and you know whether it's a growth um issue or it's an equity issue or a sustainability issues i feel in the world we are in right now you know we've come from covid we've come from uh, an election that was um very bruising this would have been the budget to settle down the country and ask how do we improve the hustler life? Because remember the running mantra was about the hustler. How does the hustler get uh, better jobs, better education, better um, better terms for business in terms of your cost of living? And I didn't see much of that. If anything, I saw things such as like VAT on fuel. If you think of a Boda Boda guy who's your ultimate hustler, that sort of affects him, uh, not just um, in his business as a Boda Boda rider, but in his cost of living in terms of what he takes home. So for me, I think this was supposed to be the hustler budget, but it didn't quite deliver. You almost feel that this focused more on foreign creditors, trying to make sure our debt is sustainable, because the biggest creditors tend to be sometimes the foreign and local creditors who uh, look at these things. So I think there was a lot more focus on uh, the credit worthiness on the Kenyan than the transformational aspect of the monarchy. And it's a balance, and but I feel it, it weighed more on that. So does this budget that was read have the pillars, you know, especially the ones you've just highlighted on, that address that microeconomic angle, then we can sit down and say you have a dime a dozen national budget, which is, you know, now popular amongst everybody, or it doesn't. Well, let's look at it from the three pillars of growth, achieving growth, achieving equity, and achieving sustainability. So let's talk about education, because education gets the biggest allocation in this budget from about $540 billion to $630 billion. Now, traditionally, education has been called as the greatest equalizer. And 
for a long time, when growing up, when public schools used to be um, do well, it really was, you know, if you go to Kibera, a school like um, Olympic in Kibera, used to produce students who would go to Alliance, who would go to MIT, and such. Whether that's the case today, um, it's debatable. I feel it's becoming stratified that um, the kind more of more and more stratified. Yes. The, the kind of private school you go to in the way they teach CBC, CBC favors one particular class because uh, it's an expensive curriculum. So it fa- it favors a middle class community over maybe somebody lower at class. the lower end. So obviously, when somebody goes to a better CBC school, because part of the budget was to really strengthen the CBC, uh, which was interesting, because during the campaign there was sort of like a different, a different take, but right. part of it was capitation to junior school. So you almost feel somebody gets an early start in life, from the junior school to a good high school to a good university, a good job. So their ability of education to equalize. And again, I would welcome an educational expert here. For me, I, I feel like that has been taken away. Has been taken away in 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 a profound way. So I think equity. I don't know if you can say equity growth. Yes, there's more spending by the government. Um, uh, if you look at infrastructure, in as much as they said that there will be no new infrastructure, they'll complete the past infrastructure projects. I think anytime the government injects money into the economy. Definitely it means there'll be more contracts uh, supplied. But do the contracts go to everybody or do they go to Buddies. an inner, inner crew? Again, sort of like equity versus growth uh, and, and, and such. Somebody would argue that even if one person who's connected gets in and gets that contract and spends money across, money circulates and everybody um, is lifts, that's a fair argument. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we get people who get big contracts and stash money abroad. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the money is circulated. So I think for them, it's really a bigger budget to boost. But for me, you know, the issue of, for example, I'm a contractor, pending bills have been a big issue. One of the big campaign era um, issues was there are too many pending bills, almost half a trillion of pending bills. And this is ordinary people who need to pay School fees need to pay, but have done some piece of work for the government and have not been paid. So these are households that whom are owed money. And that money was about $512 billion. Well, about half a trillion. One of the ideas was that money could be put into a bond. The government could raise that bond and that money could go to paying, offsetting all those spending bills, which I thought was a good idea because it means you're injecting money into the community, into households. Uh, but last week, uh, you know, that idea was shut down. They said that might add to the debt limit of the country. It might add to the debt of the country. But at the same time, a seven-year bond was issued, one of the largest seven-year bonds, mm-hmm. but almost half the amount, $220 yes. billion. billion. And the ad- argument of debt was not um, advanced. So... You know, it felt that it's it's when the money is going to help ordinary people, it's adding to the public debt. But when the money is going to investors, it's so is not. It, is it true that it actually escaped the powers that be by paying the local bills, the local suppliers, 
that they were injecting this money into the economy because I'm supposing these are the same people who are supposed to be paying taxes from their companies, the same taxes that then the national government is looking to, to, to generate more revenue from. How could then that not be a good idea as opposed to raising a seven-year bond at $220 billion? Well, during the campaign, it was a good idea. So clearly they knew it was a good idea because there are personal stories of, you know, households that have been havoced because of a delayed payment. So I think for them and the economists there, it was very clear. Uh, but as you say, maybe other forces weighed in because, you know, we are not alone in this budget-making process. You know, we have external partners who have weighed heavily on some of these um, issues. So... That was that. That that matter was rested. They said the alternative would be to come and create a, a verification of uh, pending bills to create a committee that would verify. But I'm wondering, how long would a committee, I'm assuming a committee would have 10, 15 people, how long would it take to go through 512 billion of payments? Are you going to go to every road in Kenya to see whether it was, you know, I mean, it's, 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 I, I found that a bit, a bit, um, it lacked practicality from from my perspective, but I thought that would have been the biggest stimulus. In fact, many people say the only stimulus Kenya needs is to release pending bills. That's the ultimate, because that's almost half a trillion of money that would go around the country, Correct. sorting out a lot of issues. So the fact that that didn't get that weight, um, it, it was disappointing, Danny. And back to the equity education uh, pillar policy, and this is where the Gini coefficient that we spoke about last week on Tuesday comes in. Because, you see, to anybody who's not an economist, what they saw on Thursday were just numbers being thrown at the television. But when we say that there was an increment in the education sector from, what was the figure again? 544 From billion. 544 to? 630. 630. What does that number mean? It could be 630 to more wages, then how does that then come to impact education? Because equity does not necessarily mean giving Danny Ken's life. It's just making sure that Danny's life at the stage he's at is livable. So for a hustler, a, a normal person on the street, what they really concern themselves about is food, healthcare, and education. If the 630 is going to just paying wages and conferences, how does that impact the education that is supposed to be now what you should easily access as a hustler and what the billionaire should access, whether in the private institution or even in the national institution? Unfortunately, Danny, the budget um, doesn't give you that layer of detail. Uh, that is something um, really an individual has to do their own, possibly go to the specific ministry. What the budget will tell you is this amount of billions. Even if you talk about a specific initiative, let's say this is going to a HIV initiative, but does that mean it's going to workshops around HIV discussions in Nairobi? My question exactly. Or is it going to actual um, sort of community conversations? You won't get, you won't get that from the budget. That would require a bit of digging, maybe even going to the Ministry of Health. Uh, and the ordinary Kenyan, as you say, they just see numbers on the screen. They don't get that. So that's asking a lot 
from a Kenyan to get that kind of data. But it's true that when you talk about agriculture, that has been one of the biggest criticism of agriculture, that much of the agriculture money is, when agriculture is a devolved function, much of it is in workshops, and seminars, and conferences um, in, in Nairobi. But the budget itself will, you can't get, maybe you can see the high-level recurrent numbers and high-level development numbers. I think it's about 1.5 trillion versus 700 billion. But you don't know how that plays out in individual ministries. So I think maybe it could be a challenge for because all these ministries have in-house economists and accountants to say, from what we've been given, let's say the healthcare ministry, first of all, this is what we did last year. You know, we never talk about the things we did last the year. Achievements the achievements that we did last year. From, from that budget that we want to increase, exactly. there is no tabulation of how the performance of that ministry was like with what they were given. I think this would be very good since the cabinet secretaries are still fairly new in office. I think with their communication teams within those ministries, this would be an excellent way of demonstrating value to Kenyans. First, by explaining what happened with cancers and all these things in the past. Number two, what are the things that you're doing differently? And how is that giving that health budget more life, color, depth? Is it going to the county hospitals? Is it going to the national? And if it's going to wages or is it going to machines? I think that's something, it would, it would be too, too much for Treasury to do that for every ministry. I think this is where the ministry comes and says we have our own economists and our own accountants. Please break these numbers down, which I think really helps the cabinet minister of any ministry because you show accountability, you show how much money comes in. So I, I really hope as a country, all ministries are in their homepage. You can go and download the allocation and how that allocation has gone to the last cent. To the last cent. Yeah. Because otherwise, we make, we'll be making budgets that maybe only go to fuel wages and transport costs. Looking at growth as another pillar of what the budget should have achieved if it hasn't, special economic zones. First of all, what's the difference between special economic zones and export processing zones? Yeah, that's a good question. I think most people use those, that, those two phrases interchangeably, but there's a difference um, EPZs, export processing zones, are sort of like the, the predecessor to um, SEZs. EPZs really responded to this idea that you need to be an export-led growth economy. So there are two types of philosophies. There are countries that are infant substitution, where you want to do manufacture everything domestically, and we'll talk about that. And there are countries that really think about exporting and earning had currents. And this idea first was floated in the 1950s in Ireland, the Shannon Air Base, but has grown. And I think China has been the biggest implementer. In Kenya, so EPZs really uh, had a lot of bottlenecks in terms of implementation. So SEZs came to cure issues of implementation, uh, breadth of access and services, uh, because EPZs were very goods heavy, but SEZs include services. When you talk about technology, and, and when you're not exporting goods, but exporting ideas and services. So SEZs have come up, and you have about 15 of them of a variety of nature. You know, I think Tatu City is uh, about, sits on about 5,000 acres and really is what you call a one-stop shop. And, and, and they, they vary. You have another one in Naivasha and Kedong also taking shape. And the idea behind them is to boost the country's 
export capabilities to earn the country foreign exchange and to create local jobs in those communities. Now, to the extent that those jobs pay well, above minimum wage, now I think those where normally the debates sort of are currently centered on. So is there any growth that comes out of special economic zones? If you're setting up a special economic zone in Nakuru, in, in Kiambu, to bring in minimum wage, is that really growth? Because I'd suppose that there is a lot of capital uh, flight from these special economic zones. They get 10 years of, of not paying tax. That's a lot of money that goes out from these special economic zones, whereas you're paying people 15,000 bob, which is marginal to support any kind of growth or development, personal development in that region. That's an incredible point, Danny. I feel special economic zones make sense in areas where otherwise there would be no um, attraction to investment, uh, areas that are marginalized, where no investor in his right mind would, would, would want to venture. Go, and that's what the government would incentivize. When you set up SEZ in areas that are very prime, Kiambu. The areas where even without them, there'd still be heavy investment because of proximity to Nairobi, uh, very high quality Human labor capital. force. And exact. So it becomes a very debatable point. And I wish our SEZ strategy was really looking at areas where nobody in their right mind would want to go. So you have to incentivize them. I think where we've put our SEZs are areas that are prime, prime area already, even without, that still be um, hotbeds of economic activity. And even with the argument of SEZs, wouldn't it then make more sense on the kind of on the kind of special economic zones that are being created? Because if then we are creating special economic zones for manual and manual labor, as opposed to innovation and technology, then the difference is quite clear. If we are putting a special economic zone for how to build phones, assemble, you know, my, you know, teach coding and all these things and coming up with apps and then maybe that's a little bit different from because then what you get out of that in return is a very very skilled labor force as opposed to having a special economic zone for someone to just come and tighten a screw the trade-offs have to make sense because what are the trade-offs government is losing tax 10 year worth of tax which is a lot of money correct if you think about it correct so the benefits has to be the knowledge transfer you're getting, the skills gap that is being filled. Maybe somebody can say, before these 10 years, people here used to do carpentry and plumbing and welding. After these 10 years, people are doing AI and robotics. Exactly. <laughs> I, don't if that, I don't know if that happens in Kenya. <laughs> and I think, Danny, sometimes you ask too much of this country. But, but that's the kind of special economic zones that you need to be discussing. If I'm going to set up as a government a special economic zone where you cannot put together this handset, this telephone in studio, we're setting up a special economic zone so that you can, ca you can have more and more janitors, it doesn't really make sense to me. And then when we go back to the other point of education and equity, then what's the point of this education to the level that now the budget allocated to it is increasing and then the special economic zones that we're creating as a country 
are for people to come and do yeah you know we have a special economic zone authority seza and it's supposed to oversee the implementations of this and there are many others like dongo kundu in mombasa the many coming up i feel like the counties need to be more involved in as much as seza is a national entity the counties have to come and ask in their own economic plan are these SEZs complementing the local growth plan or are they uh, postponing or, or, or delaying? And I think that's a conversation only the governors have. And that's why governors need to have very strong economic plans for some of uh, for some of these. Because in the absence of this, you'll have the national government planning for you on what we should be doing. So I think the issue, if there's a pushback, is needed. The pushback has to be come from the county and say, hey, that's a great idea, but you guys are planning. But from our own county uh, development plans, we actually thought this area would be good for university. It would actually be good for a hospital and not. So I think those are the debates that cause the leaders at the counties are the ones who really understand the economic potential of those zones. But So if they don't provide uh, pushbacks, debates, then we just see the rolling over. We of, have yeah. SEZs yeah. for other reasons. Let's go to infant industry arguments. The way the budget, from what I, I, I saw and went through, is from the way the budget has been put together, it's, it seems to support a lot of the infant industry arguments. In the sense that it just almost limits competition from what you already have in here as, as, uh, as industries as opposed to presenting uh, a playing field where even the existing industries can benefit from in the sense of exchange of ideas, exchange of labor, exchange of um, capital. But then even before that, maybe just explain what the infant industry argument is. Oh, well, the infant industry argument is an argument um that argues that young nascent industries uh, need to be protected from their global counterparts so that they can have time to develop to grow to be nurtured this was first advanced way back in the 1790s by alexander hamilton 17 1790s you're talking of 230 years ago almost 300 by Alexander Hamilton wrote a report. It's called the Report on Manufactures, and it's an emotional take on economics. Because naturally, we want to protect everybody around us. We have a natural protective mechanism. But what research and deeper understanding of economics have showed is that sometimes when you try to protect these industries, it can actually backfire. I think Brazil's example in the 1980s is a very powerful example where. They had a young um, computer budding teching industry came up. And they said, you know, we need to protect these young techies. Uh, they are building great computers. So we need to protect them from the global computer giants of the world. So for a whole decade, they had these protectionist policies. And what actually happened was a huge technological divide took place between Brazil and the rest of the world. They really fell behind. And even those computers that were being produced uh, were 
low quality and were not satisfying the needs. And Brazil lost a whole decade in terms of the technological race. So it's something that naturally we want to protect. It ca- it's an, you know, we talked about behavioral economics a few episodes ago. You want to protect, but in the fullness of time, what you end up doing is you become less competitive, you become, you don't compete with the rest of the world, and you become uh, less productive. And that's the fear sometimes we have when we try and do too much of this protectionism. You might have very few benefits where you have very low cost, low quality, and high expensive goods. And also the goods that are being imported, you ex- you, you put such a high duty on them, so it's a lose-lose. They you're become paying, very expensive yeah, so you're paying to afford. Expensive locally and expensive abroad. So actually, the few only few people who benefit from this are the manufacturers who are through what is called rent-seeking um, are, are, are able to achieve that. So we do need to have a bit of confidence in the free markets. And we do need to be competitive. And I keep saying, if Kenya can compete with athletes in the world, be a leader. If Kenya can be a leader in mobile money and M-Pesa, no other country has such depth of mobile money. Why do we want to shield ourselves? Competition, you know, they say iron sharpens iron. iron. So I think we need to shelve some of these protectionist mechanisms and show that actually you want to be the most competitive. If cheaper products are coming from Uganda and Tanzania agricultural products, you should ask yourself, how can we grow more quality food produce? Not how do we block Uganda and Tanzania, but how do we have even better versions of milk, better versions of oranges? For sure. That's the argument. You always want to be on the competitive side of history. And Professor Ryan said when he was last year that Kenya's plan was to be a market economy. So at what point has this changed or at what point did it change? So that then we have budgets that are coming in with protectionist policies. And then together with that, you have now taxes being increased, which would be supposedly very important in terms of the manufacturing and the production of certain or most of these goods from, for instance, 8 to 16%. Well, the foundations for the market economy was set up uh, in 1986. This was a uh, session paper number one of 1986, which Professor Ryan himself actually was involved was in. Was actually it was his brainchild, his, exactly, uh, and, and part of it. And uh, we were so uh, graced to have him a few episodes ago here. So that really set it up. So that was what set up the private sector as we know it today. The fear is. You know, when you have an emotional take on economics, it's very easy now to slide back. Because, as you say, in as much as you say the free market um, has its benefits, it also has its discontents. I think Larry Summers wrote a great book on, you know, the discontents of globalization, and much of it is inequality. And sometimes to cure that inequality, uh, we have a natural bearing to go you now to protectionist mechanisms and to say, no, this globalization thing is affecting us. We need to protect. So that now takes you to the other extreme where you start over protecting. So I think it's for Kenya now to find that happy sweet spot where you do want to nurture your economy, but also you do want to be competitive. I think when we find that sweet spot, now we can be a market economy that's competitive but not leading us to high inequality levels. 
that we've also seen. You know, when you speak of growth, it doesn't go by its own. So growth goes with a lot of buzzwords like investment and development. The budget didn't seem to be really catering towards what would be a sustainable path of whatever kind of investment that they were planning to make. Housing fund, for instance. I, 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 the, the plans around the housing fund are still not clear. No, once, once it's built, then what? So you purchase, maybe the maintenance remains with the person who's purchased the house. But from a county or a national level, when investments are made, do the budgets take into consideration the O&M, which, which, is, which are called the operations and the maintenance costs of these in investment projects? Well, sustainability has two layers. Um, there's that layer, for example, with the VAT exemption on uh, gas cylinders, on LPG. I think that was a good move. At first it was um, exempted, exempted and zero, zero rated. rated. So that's a good thing because when um, cooking gas becomes cheaper, fewer people uh, go out there to burn firewood, so which is good for the environment. But the deeper point you're trying to raise is there is more towards sustainability beyond just environmental. There's sustainability of hospitals and of schools and of roads. When you put up a level four hospital in a particular area, are you equipping it with healthcare equipment? You can have the salaries and the doctors but do they have the commensurate uh, mammograms and scans? Do they have those equipment for them to effectively? And I think and that's why I keep saying some of these breakdowns of these numbers need to come from the ministry. The ministry needs to tell us out of this allocation, this is what went to equipment, this is what went to salaries. Until we get those numbers, it's very difficult to know whether sustainability of these projects is, is, is a big thing. Because this country has a big problem with white elephants. Mm-hmm. We have littered with white elephants. Every governor, every president has projects that eventually lead to white elephants. So Machakos, it's actually white. <laughs> uh, you know, Milton Friedman is a very clever man. He once said that there is nothing as permanent as a temporary government project. So to the hustler, it doesn't make any sense to have these machines put in the level fours, level five hospitals, if the budget does not account for how the operation and maintenance of this machinery is going to happen. Whereas the argument just holds to, we are doing this investment, we're doing this development in the hope that we reduce pressure on Kenyatta National Hospital so that now people don't have to travel from Migori to come and have a mammogram, or people don't have to travel from, I don't know where to come and have a scan. If the operation and maintenance costs of this equipment in these hospitals is not factored in, and then the investment is done and the machine ceases operations, then it beats the purpose of you know making that investment, right? Very, very witty statement there from uh, Milton Friedman, uh, first of all. Uh, but you're right, there is a sustainability concern in some of these projects, especially when they keep morphing from week to week. One, it's a savings, next it becomes a levy, then it becomes a tax. But he's like the biggest contradiction, Danny. You know, we, tr- we want to have a housing fund, a housing tax now, where you build houses. Governments 
borrowing is quite high. Number one, when government borrowing is high, interest rates go up. You saw seven-year bond last year was at 15.8%. Now it's almost 16. 16. Yes. When you, Danny, now want to go and get a mortgage in a bank, they'll use that as a benchmark and they'll add a risk premium. So they'll give you a mortgage at maybe 20%. Now the question is how many people can afford a mortgage at that 20%? Correct. So in your intention, your very good intention of creating more houses and settlement, you're actually reducing the number of people who can access home loans. Because not, ev- not everybody can fit in the, in the 50,000 homes. We are about 50 million Kenyans. So the rest have to go and get mortgages in the banks. So the bank's interest rates are very high. You're actually crowding out home ownership. So the issue of home ownership actually starts becoming a problem. You're actually not helping people um, get more into home ownership. You're actually reducing the number of people. So that's why policy, what Milton Friedman has said there is really thinking it through. What's the long-term implications of this? Yes, you'll create these few houses, but at what cost to the rest of the economy? Are you going to create a few homes? but create market conditions that prevent everybody else from getting the same. Those are the considerations that we policymakers have to debate. And I think we'll end it on that note, even albeit not having discussed everything. Financial focused con- discussion continues on 0701984984. You can catch up with this latest episode as well as the previous episodes on Capital FM SoundCloud page or anywhere else where you get your podcasts from. Thank you very much, Ken. We'll see you again next Tuesday. Asante. Thank you.